Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you. So get in touch with us now. Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, Reality Check Radio. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together, and so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions but you know as I've said before there is no such thing as a wrong opinion opinions are like noses everybody's got one the exchange of views fair debate no cancelling no interrupting no aggressive responses we want to hear what people have to say whatever side you're on and the listener the consumer with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. Here on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We have a treat today, and a special treat. It's a surprising and amazing story. We're going to learn a lot about the Tokelau's, and we're going to learn about a tough story, a tough family who withstood enormous pressure to avoid getting the dreaded jab, we have got Mahalino, and you would have heard of him in the news because he and his wife and two daughters were held under house arrest in the Tokelau's for 14 months. And at the time, that they were arrested, it was indefinite. So they were under house arrest indefinitely because they wouldn't take the Pfizer jab. An extraordinary story, an extraordinary family, an extraordinary time in history, and what an extraordinary place the Tokelau's are. Send me a text. Send Mahalino a text. I'll pass it on. 2057. Or email inbox at realitycheck.radio. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is 
COVID and the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's being ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behavior and patterns of behavior? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. Here on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Oh, I'm loving doing this show so much. I'm loving the people that we're having on. It's just a tonic, therapeutic. It's just liberating. I'm just loving it. I hope, I hope there are people enjoying it too. And I do know there are because I just love getting your texts and your emails. And I started to reply to them all, and then I got overwhelmed. And I am figuring out. Uh, I do love getting them, and I'm figuring out how to share them. So I'm going to have a wee mail bag and share with you some of the notes that we get because they're so wonderful. Uh, Here's one. Thank you for your kind and thoughtful way of interviewing your guests. I was needing some inspiring and uplifting contact with the outside world recently, and that came quite unexpectedly through listening to you interviewing Casey Costello. Wasn't she wonderful? Isn't she wonderful? She's the Hobson's pledge lady going for one law for all. And Stephanie Wormsley. Remember Stephanie? She did the, she was the wonderful mum who homeschooled her, was it five children? And they were spread out and she did it over something like 26 years. Oh, she had so much love in her heart. It just beamed through the interview. I loved how you interviewed them, drawing so much information out of them, which in turn would be so helpful to whoever was listening, like me, for help and inspiration. I feel so much can be gained from people who are living their best life. They have so much to offer, don't they just? Some young members of the pod I'm in here are homeschooling. I was curious to know more, and because I'd listened to Don Brash being interviewed, I wanted more knowledge about how Casey fitted in. To me, Living on my own and not always knowing how can I help other people, I found it reassuring to hear that there are so many people beavering away at building new infrastructure to replace, hopefully, 
the fragile house of cards when it collapses. Thank you so much for all your sympathetic and understanding interviews and your personal input and sharing as well, Shona. Oh, how lovely. Thank you, Shona. That was that was uh, so nice. May I suggest a thing if you're in some sort of pod and there are people homeschooling? One of the things I did last year was help young kids who were just having a bit of a struggle to get to read, and I helped them with their reading. And I found it the most rewarding thing because they just required a literally sort of just 10 minutes. And with a bit of help from an outsider, um, their reading took off. And it gave me such a lot of pleasure because I suspect these are kids that could have missed the boat on the reading and just think, oh, no, I can't read. And yet with a bit of attention, they could. So it's a wonderful thing for you to do. This is from Catherine. Uh, Rodney's chat with Linda Warden was really useful interview. Encourage you to send this to a wider audience to make sure everyone who is vaccine injured has their story told in Parliament. Absolutely, for sure. Rodney, love, love, love your show. Oh, so sweet. Who the hell am I going to vote for? Well, I don't know. I don't know who I'm going to vote for. Um, I'm a single-issue voter. I'll vote for any person, political party, that will promise an inquiry into the vaccine-injured and the vaccine-bereaved, just to find out what's going on. For that transparency and accountability, that's where my vote's going. Hi, Rodney. I grew up in Oxford, North Canterbury. That's where I was born, everyone, and now live in Wanaka. Two girls similar age to yours and I have similar views. I know you'll be a busy man, but we'd love to have a chat sometime. Oh, let's let's have coffee. I'll be taking my kids out of school on Friday for Pink Shirt Day. Oh, well, that'll be a date. We can catch up then, Bob. Uh, you're just over the hill from where I live. Hi, Rodney. Love your show. Can you please read out? Ali and Linda's email again. I miss part of it. Have friends and family to submit their stories. Keep up the fight, Linda and Tony. Thank you so much. Here are the emails. Remember, we've got the petition going into Parliament, and it can be appended with the vaccine injured stories, and we'll get a parliamentary inquiry. But it's very important that anyone injured by the vaccine or suspected of being injured by the vaccine or affected by a family member by the vaccine to send your story in and to send it to Linda Wharton, which here is her email, healthforumnz, all one word, healthforumnz at protonmail.com. Proton as in P-R-O-T-O-N-M-A-I-L as in mail. Healthforumnz at protonmail.com. And then the wonderful Ali, beautiful, beautiful singer. Ali Cook, P-R. Ali is A-L-Y. Cook is C-O-O-K, P-R. Ali Cook, P-R, all one word, at gmail.com. Please, please, anyone injured, please send them the story. Just whatever the injury, it's so important to get that in. Um, here's one. Kelvin, uh, thank you for the good work you're doing and telling the truth as it should be. You can tell the true character of a person by the way they treat those who can do nothing for them. 
Well, I guess that's true in a way, isn't it? I I love the people coming on the show and I love the listeners because we learnt, didn't we, through that lockdown and carry on who our friends were and who we could trust. And it wasn't interesting that it was sometimes just complete strangers and I'll never forget walking into the parliamentary protest and just feeling as though I was in a crowd of close friends, even though I didn't know anyone, because we all shared the same views and the same values. And then outside, all the masked up people scurrying around Wellington, scared of each other. And like I said earlier, impossible to forgive those that would frighten us, put fear into people's hearts. Why would you do that? Why ramp it up? There's nothing good can come of that. The only thing that I can think about is that they do it so they can control us and make us do stuff that we otherwise, if we thought about it, we wouldn't do. And that was all part of the strategy, wasn't it? To scare us. And then you start to see it over and over again. Climate change. Be scared. Do this or else. No. Not buying it. Please send us a text, 2057, an email, inbox at radio. I love it. The guests I have on, I pass it on to them if you have a message for them. I love being part of your day. Thank you for having me along. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. You've heard the words open, fair, both sides of the story. It's easy to say them, but practicing them often seems like a bridge too far. New Zealand, it's time for a reality check. Reality check. RCR, Reality Check Radio. Rational discussion, common sense, and open debate for real. With me, Paul Brennan. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. You couldn't write the script. Veteran broadcaster Peter Williams. Where is the evidence they actually make a difference? It turns out that was a very fair question to ask. Taking on the mainstream, Chantel Baker. Mainstream media, as usual, in their little perch. The man who cares so much and whose background is for real, Rodney Hyde. The doctors don't believe them. They can't get ACC. They can't work. They're told it's all in their head. Along with a raft of contributors to inform, entertain and bring the truth back to New Zealand media. It's time for a reality check, all right. RCR, Reality Check Radio at www.realitycheck.radio. We've arrived. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde.
Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10am. Here are Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on Reality Check Radio. Flick us a text, 2057. Send us an email, inbox at realitycheck.radio. You will recall, I'm sure, through all the horror of COVID and the pandemic and the daily rules and the podium of truth and the pronouncements and the total madness, there was a story that even by the standards of the time seemed extreme and bizarre. And I felt we never got to the bottom of it. Well, we're about to. And that story is of a man and his family who were put under arrest, house arrest in the Tokelau's, because they wouldn't take their medication. And I remember reading this and thinking, whoa, even by New Zealand standards, that's pretty extreme. And it never sort of in the news got resolved for me as to the background, as to what happened and why, and how it panned out. Well, we're in luck because joining me this morning is Mahalino. Mahalino, I'm sure I mispronounced your name and I sincerely apologize. If it's any help, I've got a medical condition called dyspraxia. So I, mang- I mangle my words a little bit and it's no disrespect to you. I do my utmost and my best, uh, but good morning to you, sir. You're doing very fine, Rodney. Oh, good you're morning. kind. You're kind. I, I play the victim card. For many years, I was just always abused for mangling people's names. Um, but then I found out that I do actually have a condition. And no matter how, the more, the funny enough, the longer I think about it and concentrate on it, the sort of worse it gets. It's one of those little things. Right. But welcome to our show. It's wonderful to see you well and healthy. and. You were under house arrest in Tokelau. Yes. <clears throat> well, because you wouldn't take the COVID jab. That's that's correct. Okay. We're going to go into a background in that because, unfortunately, I know very little about the Tokelau's, except I know there is a place called Tokelau, and I want you, first of all, to tell us about your life and your family and about the Tokelau's, and then we'll get to this circumstance. So where were you born, Mahalina? I was born in Nukunonu Atoll, in the Tokelau group, and then... We, um, our parents brought us here um, to live in Wellington in around about 1968. Well, wow. and so the Tokelau's themselves are coral atolls. Yes, correct? yes, correct. Um, the three atolls are Tafu. Yes. And how many people live on them? Uh, overall, around 1,500. And what do they do? <clears throat> That's an interesting question. Um, we, their economy um, 
is basically from uh, fishing licenses uh, that I know of, and a big chunk of it, of the the aid, comes from New Zealand. Okay, so there's fishing and there's aid, and it's an... I can't imagine it. It's 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 totally cut off. Presumably, can aeroplanes land, or is it all by boat? There is a, um, a shipping schedule uh, currently of uh, weekly or fortnightly boats from Samoa. Um, one would have to get catch a plane from New Zealand to Samoa, appear, and then a boat, overnight okay. boat to Tokelau. And the Tokelau's have, how long have people lived on these atolls? <coughs> um. <coughs> I'm not sure about that, but if I hazard a guess, according to the gener- genealogy uh, given to me by my father of around about 14, 15 generations, averaging out 25 a generation, uh, about 500 years. And where did they come from? A uh, good question, again. Um, <clears throat> Our language belongs to the Samoic group. Yes. So we we um, understand Samoan, uh, Tuvaluan, <clears throat> um, and a few other Polynesian around the region. <clears throat> and so we believe and think that the Tokelauans made it to the atolls under their own steam. They weren't brought there by colonizers or anything. They actually made it on their own steam and set up life there. That's correct. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Historically, um, we read that um, uh, British, British, um, European anyway, um, Ships uh, called by, and as they do, as they did back then, in the for some centuries ago, and and found our islands inhabited. Yes. Wow, what a story! And so, presumably, too, a lot of people like your mother and father leave the Tokelau's because they would like their children to be schooled, maybe university, see the world, have a wider opportunity. And that was your parents' choice, and they moved to Wellington, did you say 1968? Yes, I remember that. I think that was the year of the Wahine. Yes. Disaster. Yes. Yes, we were here by then. So you were about 12 years old. Yes. So you have a good memory of being a child in the Tokelau's. 
Indeed, I have. Would it be just the most amazing childhood living on an atoll in the Pacific? I, I, every time I think about it, if my parents had asked me if I wanted to come to New Zealand, I would have said no. Yeah. Because it would have been like amazing. And of course, back in 1968, I guess you would have had no TV, I'm guessing. Correct. You might have had a sort of BBC World Service radio service, which some lucky islander might have. Yes, yes. And when the boats came, they might drop a newspaper off. Um, every six months, if we were lucky. <laughs> that's that's an extraordinary lifestyle back then, isn't it? Because no, no telephone, no communication. So. Um, presumably there would be some contact with the outside world through uh, a radio service, but not for it would be for emergencies and weather, presumably. Correct. It wouldn't be for, yeah. Just for chit, you just didn't do a yeah. chit-chat. So you came to Wellington. Um, what, it, it must have been, first of all, looking back on it, a huge culture shock for your mum and dad to find their way in this cold, windy city. They did very well. Good uh, on them. Yes. What did they do? My <clears throat> my father worked in the railways yes. in Wogan, Wogan, Wellington. <clears throat> um, in fact, uh, right up to when he retired. My goodness. The place was shut down. My goodness. And how many siblings did you have, Mahalina? Um, when we came, we had, uh, there were six of us. Another but, three were born here. Is that nine children in total? In total, yes. My goodness. And... Uh, were you Christians? The whole island were brought up Catholics. Catholic. So that would have been a support structure for you upon arriving in Wellington. Yes, yes. Um, if I can correct myself, the, the atoll of Nukunonu were all Catholics. Catholics. So um, we forget these days how much support church groups gave people back in the 60s. And Pop would still today if you're a member. But uh, it's hard to imagine, absent the church, a family moving to Wellington and coping. But with the community, you just had that blessed help. Yes, I remember well. Um, uh, one particular nun named um, Sister Veronica uh, helping us with our uh, schoolwork after school. Yes. Mm. And could you speak English when you were 12? <laughs> uh, broken, very broken. Mm. 
And you went to a Catholic school? Uh, no. Well, I first attended uh, Pitoni Central Primary yes. School. Yes. Before we shifted to Porirua. Yes. Oh, that was Pitoni, sorry. We mm. lived in Pitoni for f- nearly a year or so. Then we were shifted to Porirua because uh, there were no four-bedroom houses in the hut. Mm. And there were nine kids. <laughs> With nine children some years later, yeah. And so tell me quickly about your life. You're growing up in Wellington, you took a lounge. Did you enjoy it when you first moved here or did you hate it? Um, <clears throat> the first time I um, embarked out of the plane in Auckland, it was a nice, beautiful, sunny day. I almost ran back to my seat when I hit the the freezing temperatures at the door. Um, And from then on, I just had to uh, harden up. Um, Yeah, uh, it was really a shock to the system. I bet. I mean, it would be like going forward in time too, wouldn't it? In a way, yes. Like cars, buildings, skyscrapers, highways, motorways, trains. The train ride. The train ride from Auckland uh, after the air flight was uh, was a washing machine ride. I didn't know where I was. Amazing. It is like we imagine a movie to be, you know, because in a funny way, your experience can't be repeated now because I imagine if you're living in the Tokelau's now and you're 12 years old, you're pretty connected to the rest of the world. Yep. Whereas what's that, 40, 50 years ago, 50 years ago, totally unconnected or virtually unconnected as far as everyday living going, no connection. My goodness. So what did you do in your life, Mahalino? Well, having um, come to New Zealand at that age, uh, I was probably put back a year in primary school. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> moved to Porirua, um primary school there again for a year or so before I attended Poro College in 1971 <clears throat> um, until uh, three, three years. My mom uh, took me out of Porua College uh, after my school third year um, and moved me to VR because I was not paying attention. <laughs> moved you to where? I didn't quite catch that, Mahalino. Uh, to VR College. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, Catholic school in, in Porua. 
Um, <clears throat> so I, I left college in my 20th year because I was basically put back two years in yes. <clears throat> up to secondary. Went straight into uh, Victoria um, for about three and a half years. Only completed half my degree. Yes. When a friend, cousin of mine, um, offered me a job in Polygram, Miramar, I loved it. I loved Polygram. It. Polygram, if you remember. I'm thinking the, records, am I right? Yes, vinyl. <laughs> oh, God. We worked out, ladies and gentlemen, before we went on air that uh, Mahalino is younger than me by eight days. So the funny thing is we are two old men reminiscing about similar things. We're the same cohort. Of course, vastly different origin stories. Uh, I didn't. I wasn't born on an atoll, and so Polygram vinyl records. Well, and of course, this was just music was going nuts at that time. Correct. Yeah. So you had an exciting job working at Polygram. I uh, compared to studying, uh, I was in heaven. Um, and did um, you get cheap records? I love music. Yes, we mm. did indeed. Um, <clears throat> it's, hard, it's hard to imagine now. Like I can remember my older sisters getting a, you know, we had a radiogram, and my older sisters getting like a Beatles LP, and it was the most treasured uh, <laughs> thing that you had. And I remember getting... Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water LP. And like I'd hug it and I'd listen to it and put it on the record player. And it was like the most value. If there was a fire in the house, it would be the long playing record. And, and like I literally had two. It would be those two long playing records that I would have rescued, nothing else. Yeah. It came to that uh, <clears throat> a few times. Uh, I forgot to mention um, one of my friend, best friends in Poro College introduced me to the music um, that he had anyway um, to Stevie Wonder. Oh, and I, I love that that record from that um, from the era, <clears throat> as you can imagine. Yes, oh. I, I'm with you. And you'd put on a you'd put on an LP, and you'd play it, and you'd be totally transformed to another place. It was heavenly music, yes. and mum and dad would come storming in. Why are you playing that record? <laughs> that racket. That's not music. <laughs> ah, screaming into the microphone. That's all they're doing. Oh my goodness. Yeah. My um, mother my mother famously said to me, I don't mind the Beatles. I just don't like it when they yell. 
<laughs> Working uh, at Polygram. Oh, my goodness. So was Polygram making the records or were they coming in from somewhere else and you were distributing? What was Polygram right. doing? They were manufacturing. Really? Yeah. Um, well, I got that uh, opportunity to work in the vinyl section of Polygram. But when I got a full-time job, I was in the cassette-making. Oh, whoa. Cassettes. (laughs) Yeah, those little ribbons. C60s, C90s. C90s, yeah. I should should say, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on Reality Check Radio. I'm talking to Mahalino from the Tokelaus. He was the man and his family who were under house arrest. And we've got talking by way of introduction to the story. And we've got sidetracked into music and cassettes and vinyls. But I want to sort of understand uh, the circumstances of this house arrest. And it seems to me we have to sort of do the build up. But your story alone, without the house arrest, is so wonderful because you worked at. Hologram, which would be a dream job. It was indeed, Rodney. And then what happened? Uh, Well, um, let me catch myself. Um, Well, I I went through several jobs uh, after two or three redundancies, um, places closing down. I ended up um, truck driving for L.V. Martin in Naranga Gorge. Yes. For 12 years I was there. Um, uh, By then, we had started a family, my wife, Anna. um got a mortgage as you do um and you work hard you work hard pay really the mortgage. Hard. tell yeah. me is anna from the tokelaus too yes anna was born in nukunonu as well uh she the, her family came separately she was three years old then um and they moved to uh, they were sponsored by the, the, the government and moved to Rotorua where they lived for several years before they moved down to Porirua. Where you met. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, and, yeah. and the Tokelauan community in Wellington and New Zealand, did it maintain itself as a community and keep Tokelauan traditions alive and have get-togethers and dances? Did that happen? They did and do um, indeed. Um, they're, they're, they're a very uh, tight community, I would say. Oh, good. Yeah. And if you have a meeting, like I'm thinking – what would it be like Scottish people meet and they drink and, and wear kilts and play bagpipes and sing old Lang Syne and, and do do funny dances? What do Tokelauans do? Yes, we 
well capable of entertaining ourselves when we meet. Um, I must mention after college, coming out of college, there was an organization called the Mahutanga Tupulanga Tokelau. It's a youth sports and culture um, uh, group that um, uh, gave the opportunity for uh, our youth to, to not wander off by themselves, but keep into the community. Nice. Um, yeah, doing our culture thing and playing sports, like rugby. And, and, and not lost to yes. gang um, life or isolation, but part of a community and correct. being looked out for. Wonderful. Did and you me. go back to the Tokelau's at all, Mahalino? Um, I, two of my, our children and, and my father went back in the end of 99 when I, uh, left, uh, LV Martins because I, I, I was determined to go back and study. Mm. <clears throat> Get your degree. I went to, I attended Fitirea for uh, five years doing a visual arts degree equivalent diploma. Um, and then I did a teaching diploma. Good for you. And and went back to teach in Porirua College. My goodness. <laughs> and And so you were the slow learner coming back. Uh, um, yes, the that difficult... is a marvelous story. Yes, I loved. I, I actually wanted to go back. How um, old were you when you took up teaching? My fiftieth year. My goodness! And how many children did you and Anna have? Five. So you worked really hard. I had to wait. Eh? <laughs> yeah. And did you love teaching? I loved teaching in the in the first 11 years. Mm. Then <clears throat> in my 12th year I was torn between my wish to go back to Tokelau and and continuing and <clears throat> And so we, I made this decision over the the December break. Basically, I just said to Anna, "Let's let's do it." So um, I had told um, the college that I would come back. Then I had to go back in January and reverse that decision. It was really hard, but. We what year? Through. What what year was this? Um, the end of ninety of twenty sixteen. And so, and you made the decision that you would go back to the Tokelau's to live or to visit. To live, My we goodness. sold a house. 
we sold the house and and just went for it. <clears throat> and the kids? Um, the three older one, oldest ones, uh, two were in Melbourne. One was um, still in Wellington, uh, living their own uh, own lives. We took the our two youngest, Koloi and Gypsy. Uh, they were twenty five and fourteen then. Wow. And what was the draw for you to go back? That's a very good question. I had put off this gnawing wish for for probably a decade that I just had to go back. Uh, I wasn't sure why, but um, uh, I finally made the the big move. Was it a physical place thing, a spiritual place thing, or was it your family back in the Tokelau's or the community, or was it the whole lot? All the above. Mm. And how about Anna? Did she follow you, or did she go with equal enthusiasm? I'd say she was 50-50. Mm, you're that's, a tough man. That's better than 60-40. Yeah. <laughs> um, I need to correct. Uh, our youngest was 10 then. 10. And one was 10. 25. And what were you planning to do in the Tokelau's when you got there? Um, that's a, another good question. I was hum and hiring about teaching there mm-hmm. or doing something useful anyway. Mm. Uh, so for you, it was very much in 2016 a one-way trip. Pretty much. Mm. Yeah. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We're talking to Mihalino. Uh He was along with his family, under house subject to house arrest and the token hours because they wouldn't take their medication. Um, And we're just building up to a young boy who left the token hours age 12 to Windy Cold Wellington, which must have been a horrific shock. Made good in Wellington, worked hard, uh, Struggled at school catching up, but got through, worked, then went back, finished a degree, taught, actually taught, taught at his whole college. What a wonderful role model you would have been, Mahalino. And then had that gnawing need to return home. And at the beginning of 2017, which is where we're up to, with two of his children and his wife, he returns to the Tokelau's. What was that like? It was the best feeling for me. How wonderful. I I felt for for our children and Anna being uh, conflicted. If 
if that's the word. Yes. Um, but I was loving being embraced by that warm breeze instead of a the nippy chilly one. Yeah. And because oftentimes we go back to favorite places of our childhood and the reality isn't the memory. And that big tree is really just a little weed tree and things like that. But when you returned, you weren't disappointed. No, I was not. Um, <clears throat> so I was looking for an opportunity to be helpful. Um, and one of them came up very soon, um, and that was to represent my mother's, uh, one of my mother's families in the council, local council. I honestly did not seek to be the representative for the family. Uh, I didn't feel I, uh, I could, but um, after the family agreed, when we met, um, I was willing to, to stand in until they find somebody else. And this is the council of elders, I guess, that run the atoll. Correct. The Taupuleng. And how many councillors are there? If I remember right, the number I heard was 36. 36. And are they elderly, older, or can they, can they be young? There were... Um, Younger ones, um, probably mid thirties. Okay. Or younger, even. Men and women, or just men. Men and women, mm -hmm. um, mostly men. And presumably, you know everyone on the atoll. The older ones. Yes. Um, the the. The forty-year-olders, um, I, I might um, remember when they tell me their parents. Yes, and you had been away for nearly fifty years. For nearly fifty years, uh, I must add, uh, Rodney, that um, a lot of them were my family. Yeah, like um, uh, second course. cousins and yeah. so on. Yeah, of course. And did it mean, I mean, I'm thinking that in the Tokelau's, I just can't imagine, I can't imagine coming here from the Tokelau's, but then living here for 50-odd years and then returning, you must have had the whole culture shock in reverse. The place did change, yes, and especially for Anna and Glory and Gypsy. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So being on the council, was that like a full-time position or did you do other things? Um, 
we met uh, about twice a week. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Um, and um, without my knowing, when I arrived, I was told that I was eligible for the old age pension. <laughs> so you could live. Yeah, at 60. <clears throat> uh, that's when you are entitled to that. Could could I hop on a plane and a boat and arrive in the Tokelau's and live? Now, Rodney, um, yeah. you'll be in in the queue with me. Um, it's, okay. They've since changed some rules. I, I'm not okay. up to date with it yet. Okay. Now, let's get into the meat. Because this was all going along, 2017, you're on the council, you're getting your old age pension at 60, which is still a very young man. You've got your wife, you've got two children, you're in the Tokelau's, it's warm, it's the place of your ancestors and parents and grandparents, and all before. And then what happened? And then it happened. Um, in twenty twenty one, there was, uh, as you know, uh, <clears throat> uh, stories of uh, of a great pandemic came through. Um, <clears throat> the news um the the internet was was uh working in the islands and at that time i was i had been aware before we left to Tokelau. obviously i was besides my study i was also um investigating certain narratives on the net yes regarding uh, certain individuals. Um, one of them, um, Mr. Gates. Yes. <clears throat> uh, and all the um, big issues of corporations um, and, and universal organizations. Namely so you, the, you were down rabbit holes. I was down many rabbit holes. Before the rest of us knew there was such a thing. Um, I, 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 I didn't know that it was coming, but I knew certain corporations and individuals in them that were probably not doing what they say they were doing. Mm. Yeah. So, so you were um, you were awake to I was what, very, hap what happened before it even happened almost. I was very wary, yes. uh, cautious, even coming there. Um, in 2017. Um, yeah. My goodness. I, I, have, I have to mention, Rodney, um, before this, um, 
e- event came about, Anna and I were, were raising eyebrows on the island about asbestos mm-hmm. and Roundup glyphosate. Yes, indeed. So asbestos was common on the island? It wasn't common. Uh, there were particular um, buildings that were identified. And, and this had been going on for years. And there was Roundup being used on the island? And being sprayed um, liberally around the islands with, with little care. Safety. Okay, got it. So, and you were raising eyebrows because in this tight-knit community, you had turned up having had 50 nearly years in New Zealand and you were saying, I'm not sure about spraying this Roundup everywhere. Yes, and <clears throat> I, I, when when I realised that the Taupulenga, the, the council, were all for what was going on, I requested that the plot, our family plot that we went back to build on, not be sprayed. And from then on, um, I was a target, probably. Wow. And so in a tight-knit community, unbelievably tight-knit because it's sitting in the Pacific Ocean, and everyone's related to everyone else, not just neighbours and not just in a small community, all interrelated. Yeah. The need for general agreement on everything would be very high. It'd be a very conforming society. Absolutely. And here you were in Anna coming in from the outside you sitting on the council and asking questions. Yes. So you were already making the decision to stand alone outside of what the community thought for what you thought was true. You summed it up really well. Hmm. Did you find that a tough decision to come to? Yes and no. Yes, because it was I thought it was the right thing to do. Um And, yeah, that statement answers both yes and no. Yeah. So we then hear of this great pandemic sweeping the world and you're on a council on one of the three atolls 
And then what happened? Prior to the uh, final meeting I went to, I went and, and spoke to the local commissioner and then the I had I had a, a a chat with the health director. Now, just tell me this: I'm confused. We have a council, and we yep. have a commissioner and a health director. Is the commissioner? What's the commissioner? Uh, his role um, is basically um, that of a a, a judge. Okay, and and they work with the council, sit atop the council, adjudicate the rules. Who appoints them? Are they from New Zealand? Is this is this Mr. Ross Dern? No, no. Oh, okay, that they. Who is the commissioner? I mean, what what? How do they get that job? Uh, I would say there'll be. They would be nominated. Yes. Being an elder and uh, okay, yeah. So they're a adjudicator, and um, they work presumably alongside the council. They're in the council. They're in the council. Okay, and the health director is a doctor, I assume, or someone with medical um, training. At the time, she was actually a nurse. A nurse. Mm-hmm. Got some medical training. And they are part of the administration, and are they on the council or report to the council, or how does that work? Um, the, 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 the deputy director is the one uh, um, that was in the council. Got it. So um, you went you went to see the commissioner and is it the deputy or director of health? Yeah, both. Both the director health. and deputy director of health. Yes. And, I have spoken to. And what did you have to say? Um the the my conversation with the commissioner was very interesting. Uh because um, towards the end, <laughs> he he was he was very, um, shall I say, cagey about my approach to him. He was, I don't think he felt comfortable with the topic I was bringing up. He suggested that I. Go next door to to the Department of Health and and see the the people there, which I did after him. But I I, I was assuming that he he was very uncomfortable with what I was bringing in, and with him mentioning not to tell anybody that I had seen him. Whoa. And what uh, were you what were you raising with him? Well that this um 
that this story, the the narrative of a, uh, that that the uh, prime minister of New Zealand was was pushing was not what she said it was. Amazing, um, amazing. This is before the vaccine, before the rollout. Uh, before the was it the Canterbury that yeah delivered the thing yeah the Canterbury um, oh yes so right from day one of the pandemic when everyone was being scared out of their britches yep you were going to see the commissioner and saying this is I don't believe this to be true. Yeah, and, I can understand. I can understand their discomfort because, boy, I couldn't. I'd raise that with my closest, dearest friends, and they'd look at me like I was mad. I even requested to the health department. I requested um, getting ivermectin, so I wouldn't have. My family wouldn't be jacked. Yeah. Um, that fell on deaf ears. Um, so right from the get-go, you were raising it. Everyone was very uncomfortable because what we came to know as the podium of truth had spoken and had spoken all around the world. And you were already had a target on your back as difficult troublemaker, not going along with the herd and raising difficult questions that no one particularly has an answer to. And so this was just adding to the angst of the atoll and the community. Yes. That was very hard um, at the time, especially for, for my family. The, the embarrassment I may have felt was nothing compared to <laughs> to um, to my fear for for the sake of basically my family in Nukunon. That's a, probably everybody there. Mm. Were you immediately shunned or did that come later? On the same day that I went in to resign, they they would say that I was removed from the council. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. Uh, I was not given the opportunity to say my I had written something to read out. I was not um, given the opportunity. I was basically basically shut down in the meeting and asked to to wait outside while <laughs> while they do whatever. After an hour of waiting, I I left. I went home. Um, a while later. Um, some police came and requested that uh, 
Anna I and Koloi, who was an adult then, were summoned to, to back to the council meeting, uh, sat in front of the main um, main uh, table and basically told um, that we would be house arrested. For what reason? For not agreeing or going along with the council decision that everybody were to be jabbed. Okay, so we've moved on from the jab has arrived now in the Tokelau's? Oh, yes. Um, that was some, it was about a, a week or, or so before the, the rollout. Okay. So I've just, I, I skipped a bit there. Just help me here, Mahalino. Yeah. Because yep. when New Zealand was panicking and we were going into our first lockdown, you were already speaking out to the commissioner and director and deputy director of health that you thought this was overblown and not true. Correct? Yes. And at that stage, you stayed on the council. Yes, yes, for and, a week or so. Oh, only a week or so. Okay, and then, and then, the jab turned up, and you refused it. Just help me. I'm trying to uh, see in New Zealand, we might be on a different timetable. So yeah. in New Zealand, what we locked down in the Mar March, I can't even remember when the jab arrived, but it was like a year later, if you follow me. And I'm just finding myself in the conversation with you and the Tokelau's that the fear of the pandemic occurred and then the sort of jab seemed to have arrived the next week. In New Zealand, there was a big gap between the two. The, the timing I remember is we were house arrested in August. And the, the, council, the final decision of the council to house arrest us was on August the second. Okay. Well, you'd have that one right. So the three of you were house arrested, and that was simply because there are no jails. Yeah. And so you were essentially arrested, but to stay at home. Now, let's just unpack this, and I'm sorry to do this to you, Mahalina. I, I, I don't want to, I'm uh, just trying to understand it. Your reasons for not wanting the jab were what? Yeah. 
there was no evidence up to that point that this jab was truly for for health reasons. Mm. None. Uh, I, I, I have been following quite a few professionals that were um, removed, shall I say, from yes. their high-ranking positions as physicians. Very, very credentialed people were speaking out. Very highly credentialed. And what they were saying rang true with me. Mm. Was so you're I looking think. there, you're suspicious, you think the pandemic's been overblown, you're like me, seeing credentialed people saying, don't understand this, you're not feeling any great risk, and mm. you're thinking this thing's been rushed, so I don't think I'll take it. Simple as that. And you are arrested. Yes. Did you regard that as punishment? or as a mechanism to isolate you for the purposes of you'd get COVID and not spread it? Were you quarantined or punished? I I feel that we were punished. Yes. So what was house arrest? And the Tokelau's life, how does that work? I, I, we were quite um, fortunate. The, the house plot of my wife's family that we were living on is on the lagoon side, right next to the lagoon, basically. And, and just one side of, of the plot was um, facing the village or the road, the path. The other two are basically, the other three are basically private. And, and we, we I, I had no... Um, I had no reason to 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 believe that we weren't allowed outside. Mm-hmm. Some people may have thought that we weren't allowed outside at all. I didn't really care. I, I went outside anyway. My family went out because mm-hmm. the, the the basically I thought that the the council had no um, because they had no uh, protocols about being house arrested. We were probably the first family that have done that to that extent. So um, we just pushed the boundaries of our house arrest. We went outside um, at one time uh, for a few weeks or a month. The the word was we weren't allowed to to even go swimming. But then a letter arrived sometime maybe four weeks 
later, months, that we were allowed to, to go swimming <laughs> in the lagoon that was uh, not 15 metres away. Goodness me. So um, under house arrest, you were taking your opportunities to go for a walk. You could go I, swimming. But presumably you wouldn't stop down the street and talk to neighbours. You were just isolated. Uh, we we were isolated on the plot. Okay. So the when plot, you say yeah. you'd you when you would go out, it would be to the lagoon for a swim and you'd go outside on your plot. You wouldn't go beyond that. Correct. My goodness. And that was August the 2nd, 2021, I'm guessing. Yes, yes. And so did you talk to anyone? One, one incident during our house arrest, maybe two to three months later, um, that when when all of us were, were house arrested, including our, I think, 14-year-old, uh, we had no communication, no, no police or official from, from the government or the council um, bothered coming to check on us. I actually walked out one evening because I was really mad at the the mayor or Pulenuku. I walked to his house that was a, not more than a hundred meters away, asking for help. For, um, for getting uh, shopping done for us. He, he received me, um, <laughs> he was holding a, a, a beer bottle in his hand. He was drinking with somebody and wouldn't even receive my request. He just told me to turn around and go back home and not even listening to what I was asking. That really got to me. And that's about when we started getting our story out on the net. I was not a social um, I, 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 I was I did not have any social um, media media at the time, but because of where, how we are, we were. I I listened to Anna and went on the net and got our story out. So you had internet and a computer, and you could connect to the outside world. Yes, we just had a phone. And you were the total pariahs.
totally excluded from your community. Yes. And presumably there's no COVID at this stage in the Tokel House. None. And presumably the Tokel House aren't willy-nilly letting people in. Uh, just uh, who they allowed in, like um, essential workers mm. um, and a UN rep turned up. So how did you how did you eat? We we had by then <clears throat> our, our eating habits had changed by then. Um, we were making do with eating once a day, most days. We were okay with that because that was a, a conscious effort. Um, but um, there were times when, when, especially for our young ones, that, that I thought we were, because there were a lot of uncertainties for us at the time. Um, we were lucky when our cousin, my cousin turn, turned up and did some of our shopping. Um, but these were all non-official services. Well, it was a very, very deep commitment. It's one of the fascinating aspects, thinking back on it from my experience, was I got into a debate on the most trivial thing here in New Zealand. I wasn't allowed into the local open-air pool. And because I wasn't allowed in, my son, who was of an age that he needed adult supervision, could never go swimming. So his two older sisters could go for a swim because they didn't need adult supervision, but he couldn't go swimming, and I couldn't supervise him. And I got into a debate with the chief executive of the council. And his attitude towards me was summed up by him saying, all you need to do, Rodney, is get the jab. <laughs> and to him, it was the simplest thing in the world and a total no-brainer. Just go in, get the jab, and you can go to the pool. But to me, not just I had a concern about it, but the whole nature of being bullied into yeah. it made me determined not to get it. And I was stubborn. And so to get the jab, to me, became the biggest deal in the world. And there was no way. But you've got it. Like mine was a trivial issue you've got it big time and so the mayor is looking at you and thinking Mahalino just get the jab <laughs> yeah. 
Well, just get the jab. It'll take a second. It's not like I didn't drop dead. You'll be right. But you, right. you don't, we don't see it that way, did we? We never saw it that way. It was a big deal because it was so unknown. And when you read about this thing delivering mRNA to your cells and manufacturing, having your body manufacturing this protein, you're starting to think, I don't think so. I don't think that sounds a good idea, given that the disease itself is relatively trivial, that the efficacy of the vaccine was never demonstrated, and it was a brand new substance. So it became a huge deal to us. And obviously, a huge deal to you. But you can sort of understanding, understand, you know how you meet people and you say, oh, I'll take this pill. Oh, okay. And they take a pill. They never think about it. And so other people were getting the jab without thinking about it. Yep. And they'd be looking at you thinking you're peculiar. Yep. But you're stubborn. You're saying, you, you know, I understand it perfectly. You're saying the more you try and push me into this, the less <laughs> – <laughs> I mean, like, try and convince me that this is a good idea, not bully me. When looking back, Rodney, um, and probably during it, I, I, I thought exactly how you, you described mm. um, that official telling you that it's okay. Mm. It was a very big deal. Um, very big deal. And I had to teach my kids who were going to school that if anyone approaches them, because you didn't know how this was going to go, and give to give them a jab, they were basically to kick them in the nuts and run. Yep. Because right. it was such a big deal to me. And I didn't know the lengths that they would go to with kids. Yes. We so, we actually we actually um told our daughter not to go to school. Yeah. When we were house arrested. Yeah. Yeah. So you had the internet. What are you doing on the internet to tell your story? We uh well, Anna basically had the connections on on social media and she she answered uh, a question by uh was i think a, a health forum yes uh asking how 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 the the so-called COVID was, was affecting us and she just put it out there that we were house arrested and then uh, then our, our, our friend then uh, Tracy um, contacted her and, and they uh, interacted our story and and this wonderful lady would not let our story go 
she just um bend over backwards and 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 let our um story be heard and who was this lady are you able to tell us yes uh tracy and mark winther is, is the family that um that we're with uh at the moment they, they've basically helped us um get our story out not just that she got us into contact with with really helpful people um the other was was george williams in samoa he was a huge help with um um facilitating our, our parcels oh, coming through and um, with these people you knew before mahalina no rodney we had nobody that would help us our families here basically abandoned us to the whims of the council my goodness my goodness and as you lose your nearest and dearest complete strangers yeah came to the fore step in yeah and give you everything isn't that something yeah the, the the only family that we had helping us were our um our own elder children yes the two in melbourne and one in wellington isn't that, isn't that a story you're at the far far end the extremities of treatment meted out to those who didn't take their medication but all of us who refused our medication experienced this to a greater or lesser degree and that friendships and family members fell away not that they just disagreed with you but they shunned you and then complete strangers would support you and you almost had a change of friendships overnight not almost we did yeah this wonderful lady just wouldn't let us our story go she to quote her she said how could i not do something and you're staying with her now yes she's uh, yeah till we find our feet um my goodness and so tracy was responsible for getting your story out that i read about it in the paper that um got picked up on social media here in new zealand yes um the 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 platform that that helped us initially were was Talanoa Sa- Sao. Um, 
um, Billy T before that um, and uh, Daily Examiner through Talan Wasao. And then Liz Gunn picked it up. Great. Um, yeah, all those wonderful personal heroes of us, of ours. So um, the story's being told back here in New Zealand. Even someone like me down in central Otago <laughs> are learning of it. And you remain under house arrest. So what happened next? Well, amongst that team that got around for us, Rodney was a wonderful uh, law team. Um, uh, we couldn't have done it without them. You, you would know that Katie uh, was right there in the middle. She was probably the, the spokesperson and the big mover in the group. They yes, put together. Well, I've got I've got to know Katie now. Yeah, and how wonderful is she? She's brilliant. Brilliant. Beautiful they, woman. They, they put something together that was enough to basically, uh, it was basically an ultimatum to our council on Nukunonu to release us or else it would go further um, to the to the UN uh, Human Rights Tribunal. Mm. And it ended up, um, yeah, the council had to release us. It was, it was a wonderful feeling. Um, the, the rumor started, of course, the village found out that we would be released before we did. Because there's nothing coming straight to us um, directly. Uh, we heard through uh, certain visitors coming around that we're still brave enough to to come around um, to tell us that. So we just waited patiently to see if it comes about. And we heard that the council um, agreed uh, with about a, an hour to go of, of the deadline. And following that, we, we were all summoned to the council. It wasn't enough for them to just release us. They had planned to bring us to in front of the whole village. They invited the whole village for this occasion, not to be, um, not to, to give us freedom, but to really dig in to embarrass us. 
Mm. Rodney, one of the best victories in my mind is turning up to that planned meeting for our release on my own. Why? Because sitting there and having them ridicule us, well, me, I was, I was thinking I was really happy that none of my family were there with me. They had four chairs there for the rest of us. And some were really unhappy that it was just me turning up. They wanted all of us to be embarrassed and ridiculed in front of the whole village. I was sitting there on top of the world, um, a million miles away from what they were trying to say to me. And I just took it. Goodness. You can imagine. What was the date? That was September the 21st, uh, 2022. You had been under house arrest for 13 months. Nearly 14. And they had to release you because Katie and her team had threatened legal action because you were unjustly detained. Yes. And the council realised they had to stop. But rather than say, just release you or release you and apologise, they brought you before not just the council but the whole town to belittle you and humiliate you and further degrade you. Yep. But you said to your wife and daughters, I'll go, you stay here without knowing what they were planning. How long did that go on for? Oh, at least an hour. Mm. I remember right. You would feel like you're back in ancient times. I think maybe it was a safety mechanism, but I was conscious. I could hear what they were saying. I, I know who stood up and said something, but my mind was feeling, um, was also feeling sad for them. Yeah. They were my family. Um, and it was just sad 
seeing them as as victims of a, a big lie, mm. basically. And you they weren't, the, and you weren't the victim; they were. Yeah. We have being Christian. We have the image of Jesus dying for us and suffering on the cross and forgiving his tormentors. Yeah. In the greatest sacrifice of all time. And you were living that lesson. Not to compare, but to say you were feeling for them. And funny enough, that's how I feel for my friends and family because yes. I've got a lot of anger for the political leaders yeah. who stoke this stuff. And you and I and our listeners were sort of awake to this possibility at least. But so many of our friends and family just believed whatever they were told. And if they were told to be scared, they'd be scared. If they were told to take a medication, they would take it. If they were told to hate on their neighbours, to hate on their workmates, to hate on their family members, to dob them in, they would. And there seemed an inability to abstract themselves from the moment to look at what was happening. To do that to another human being. Arrest a family unlawfully for nearly 14 months. To be forced to concede that it was unlawful and wrong. To bring them before the council and the town and to denounce them. You left the meeting. Then what happened? We left the meeting. I left the meeting. Yes. Uh, feeling quite lighter. Um, uh, the weeks following that, uh, I wasn't quite sure what we would do. I, Anna kept saying, we, we need to go. We need to go. This was in September. And I was thinking, I didn't want to go. I didn't want to leave. Um, Did you not want to leave because that would be them winning? Yes, in a way. Yeah. But it wasn't. I, I I would blank out 
and not worry about what people think. Mm. Because um, you're now in these weeks, you're now no longer under house arrest, so you can walk yeah. about the town. Yes. But everyone must be hating on you. That was the, the impression, of course. Um, um, my family probably um, felt it worse than me. Mm. I, uh, I felt for them. I kept saying, I, I don't want to leave. Um, but I, will, I was conflicted about what was at the time uh, still an uncertain time I knew my, my family wanted to leave hmm. and some weeks later it dawned on me that I, I couldn't let them go without me coming with them um, I didn't want to stay there and hear whatever happened to them here and, and I'm sitting there um, alone. So um, I made the decision to, to come with them and I'm glad I did. So after, after telling um, certain people that I would be back. <laughs> You're Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> I will be back. Tell me, was there any problem returning to New Zealand unvaccinated? When we heard that that we would not face any problems, um, we, we made the move. Mm. I need to uh, make it clear, Rodney, the people that got around us to help us move here, um, be it financially or with prayers, good wishes, we couldn't have done it easier for ourselves without them. They, there are a whole string of names I would like to mention. Please do. Uh, I know I'm going to miss some. Mm. I apologize. But um, Katie's team of lawyers, um, all the media uh, from Talanosa'o, um, Billy T, Kahika, um, uh, Daily Examiner, Talano Sao, um, Liz Gunn, Liz Gunn, um, Chantal Baker got on board. Um, gosh, um, and a good doctor, Dr. Rene De Monti. We want to thank you so, so much. Mm. I'm feeling a wee tear in my eye, Mahalina. And so 
you arrived back in New Zealand on what day? February the 25th. This year? This year. And there was a kerfuffle at the airport. Do tell. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what happened? Little did we know. We were so happy getting off the plane. safely, walking through customs, and little did we know what was happening outside. Mm. We, I remember walking out, and there wasn't, um, the, the, the people outside were, were facing the other way, um, because we were um, told Liz and, and Jonathan will be there and some supporters. They were there, but they were facing another dilemma, unexpected. They were being detained. Uh, Liz and Jonathan were being detained. Um our good doctor Rene was there and they were being roughly treated for wanting to meet what basically would become their family. They have helped us so much and we were denied that opportunity to meet at the airport as families do, I'm sure there were other families with cameras just wanting to greet family and why pick on us? I cannot comprehend the the logic of so-called authorities Denying us the opportunity. Mm. I wonder if you can, Rodney. The abuse continued. It continued. But that's when you know who your friends and family truly are. Yes. I must say, Mahalino, that is one heck of a story. It continued. Uh, it continues, Rodney. Um, just last weekend, we met up with Liz Gunn yes. and Jonathan and friends, and we had big hugs and probably a couple of tears uh, as family do when meeting. It was really heartfelt. Hmm. I think, Mahali, know that your wife Anna is a saint. 
She's my rock. Absolutely, she must be your rock. Because the stresses and strains that you have been put under. I, I must mention, uh, Rodney, um, yes. my, my wife, before we left, was diagnosed with a um, neurological condition to do with anxiety and stress. She was on specialist medication. And it was, I cannot imagine how hard it was for her. Mm. Is she better now? Oh, <laughs> under this environment of, of a good community, yes, she is. Mm. Throughout the whole experience, did you ever doubt yourself? Or wonder whether you are making the right choice or think about changing your mind? Or were you the entire time resolute? If I if I wanted to give up, for me it would undo everything everything that I had decided to do when I made my decision to do what I had to do, mm. to be resolute. Thinking back, I think the council actually expected me to give up. Mm. Because those 14 months were long, but at the time, they stretched in front of you with no end. Yes. I mean, conceivably, you could have been under house arrest for the rest of your life. Correct. It wasn't like I'll put you in prison for three years. You were detained indefinitely. Indefinitely. Unbelievable. Now, you're going to have to help me here because I want you very slowly and very carefully to pronounce your full name because I will struggle with it and I I want listeners to know your full name. So tell us your full name, Mahalino. Mahalino Patelio. Mahalino Patelio. I'm sorry, that is such a beautiful name. Sounds like music. Now, what's ahead for you and your family now? What's ahead? 
Yes. We're looking forward to, as we know, it's, it's compared to where we came from, it's relative safety. We're still full of uncertainties in New Zealand as the world. But in a community of like-minded people, Rodney, as you can imagine the difference, mm. we are not alone. And isn't that a wonderful thing? It's a beautiful thing. Do you know, before COVID hit, I had become, I thought of, as quite mythanthropic in the sense that I enjoyed my own company and being with my family, but not being about with people because I'd had a lot of that previously. But when COVID hit, I realized how much I needed people and their support because that enforced isolation of our lockdowns affected me terribly and also because it didn't make sense. And then <laughs> when I found my community, this radio station, these listeners, these yeah. protesters, that river of filth, man, it was just so beautiful and wonderful because it wasn't just people, it was wonderful people who stood for something. <laughs> and my life has become, I think like yours, so much richer. Yes. Through this, Mahalino, you were raised a Catholic. Have you kept your Catholic faith? I would say I have kept at least my Christian faith. Hmm. I know what you're saying because the church of man sold us out a little bit. Back in the islands, I felt, I felt it. Hmm. I will never forget the churches saying, get vaccinated or don't come or we're not having a service because of lockdown. To me, that wasn't Christian. Mm. Because Jesus moved amongst everyone. Especially yes especially the sick and the outcast. And you were the outcast ground zero 
because you were outcast on a tiny atoll of 500 people. You were outcast from friends and family going back generations to whom you had returned after a long life elsewhere. You were mm. outcast and then belittled. You're going to go back? Now and then I would play with the idea, Rodney. Is It's a, a strong pull on my spirit. Mm. I still feel for the community. One of the one of the best feelings for me coming here is not to be silent, Ronnie. I want to help, keep helping my community come out of their trance. And you, your heart is filled with forgiveness, isn't it? I'm sad, Rodney, about how my community, or our community, really, is basically sleepwalking. I want to help. Well, you are helping because you have shown a clarity and a strength which is a beacon and inspirational to us all. Thank you, Rodney. The um your name, Rodney Hyde, I remember vividly in the political circles before we left. Mm -hmm. But I have to say, the political circles was far, far away from my mind at that time. I wish I, I, I was more connected to it. <laughs> I, I laugh at myself thinking back. I, I, I did vote back then, but without even thinking mm. or looking deeply into the, the political spheres. But maybe that's a, a area I need to be more uh, versed on. 
Well, don't. Don't. Yeah. Feel too bad because I feel the same in the sense that looking back, I didn't feel versed on things. Mm. And I was altogether, I would say, too practical. I was sort of trying to look for solutions to particular problems. Yeah. When I feel that there is a deeper values problem, spiritual problem that is hard and too easy to ignore. And I had a very deep feeling when I stood outside our parliament buildings, just a foot soldier, in a protest movement. And I went to the protest movement, to the protest, just to be one of many. And I decided that if need be, I could just lie on the road and block it. And others could be busy doing stuff, but I could be a block or lie on top of someone or just get in the way. But I looked up at that parliament that I know so well or thought I knew so well and could make it zing and make it work. And I didn't recognize it. And I didn't recognize the thinking behind the people that were standing on the balcony, the MPs, the speaker, yep. whom I know very well. I didn't recognize or understand the journalists. I couldn't believe that we were denied an opportunity to speak even. Mm -hmm. And so... I feel like you, you know, it's like a, a stranger to it. Mm. And again, we've all had that feeling because I'm sure you looked around your community in the Tokelau's and you struggled to understand. It's so when I look at politics and parliament and politicians now, I don't understand them. <laughs> it's the most peculiar feeling. And do you know what's even more horrible to me is I wonder what I would have been like if I'd been in parliament during COVID, you know? because I would have been in a different circumstance. You'd like to think you'd know how you'd behave, but I'm just not sure. It was so, yeah. such a strange time, such a strange thing. And um, But I love it that you are in a forgiving mood, because that's what I need to learn. Because 
you've got more reason to be angry than I have. And I've got to get I've got to get past that and be forgiving. And um I will never forgive the bosses, if you like, the leaders, the politicians. I'll never forgive, I'll never forgive Jacinda Ardern. I'll never forgive Chris Hipkins. I'll never forgive Chris Luxon. I will never forgive David Seymour. I'll never forget whoever the Green leaders were. I never forgive them. And I will never forgive those Ashley Bloomfields and those that got up and spread the fear because there's no justification to frighten people ever. Even in the most scariest times, you look to leadership to calm you, to reassure you, not to put fear in. And the only reason that you want to scare people is to manipulate them, is to control them, yep. is to be tyrannical. And it may be that Jacinda Ardern, Christopher Luxon, David Seymour, and the Greens, they themselves had become scared and were just transmitting that fear on. But even that is unforgivable because you know as a husband and as a dad, your job isn't to transmit your fears to your wife and children. Your job is to be strong and to reassure them. And anyone that aspires to a leadership position within a family, within a community, within a country, surely have to understand that. Mm. Otherwise, they're not fit. And so I can forgive, you know, all my friends and family, but I won't forget or forgive that leadership that failed us and through their decisions and actions caused such unbelievable suffering. Yeah. Not of me, but of others. Of our elderly people that had to die alone. Mm -hmm. That The inhumanity of it, of businesses that were destroyed, I can't forgive that. I'm sorry. And I'll always talk, I'll always discuss, I'll always be polite. But nah, I my forgiveness, and you're probably the same with those who spoke out against you and denounced you. I'm no saint. Really. No. <laughs> we're not your wife's a saint, but you're my wife's a saint, but you and I, we're no saints. No, no we're not I'm not a saint. <laughs> I you're you're right saying it, it it's really hard to forgive mm. these 
monsters. Mm. Um, yeah, and so-called leaders. Mm, so-called leaders. Um, Mahalina, I can't find the words to say how wonderful it has been yep. to talk with you this morning. You, as I said, are an inspiration and a beacon for us all. You have an amazing story up until COVID, which was fascinating, to learn about the Tokelau's, to learn about what it was like to arrive on a cold and windy day in Wellington in 1968, to succeed like you succeeded to overachieve against the odds, to have a belief to be strong, to raise a family, to be a good husband, to feel the pull back to the Tokelau's, to go back to the Tokelau's and thinking, this is me. I'm on the council. I'm in paradise. I'm in the place of my ancestors and I'll retire then to see something rotten happening and to stand against it and lose everything because you lost your freedom and your family lost their freedom in the Tokelau's. They were arrested without indefinite, without end, and you stood your ground. It's been an honour to have you on my show. It's been an honor to be on it. Mm. I feel we are friends now, Rodney. We are friends. We are... I can't wait to hear your story. Oh, my story. Yeah, well, I wish I was stronger. Mahalino, I'm going to try Patalea. You say your last name for me one last time. Your, first, your, your name. It's so wonderful. My first name now rolls off your tongue, Rodney. Mahalino Patelahio. It's wonderful. I will get it. We have been listening, yeah. ladies and gentlemen, to Mahalino Patelahio. I'll get it. What a wonderful man. What a wonderful family. What a wonderful story. Indefinite house arrest in the Tokelau's for not taking his medication and of the wonderful people who supported them and who set them free and look after them to this day. Send us a text, please. You can text us and I'll pass it on to Mahalino. I'm sure he'd love to hear from you. Send a text to 2057 or email me, inbox at radiocheck.radio. You may just want to reach out and send your Beshwa sister, Mahalino, and his family for enjoying him sharing his story with us. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Rodney. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation.
With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together, and so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I, I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions. But you know, as I've said before, there is no such thing as a wrong opinion. Opinions are like noses. Everybody's got one. The exchange of views, fair debate, no cancelling, no interrupting, no aggressive responses. We want to hear what people have to say. Whatever side you're on. And the listener, the consumer, with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. Good morning, everyone. It's a Royal Talk with Rodney Hyde on Reality Check Radio. Wonderful to have you along. Drop us a text, 2057. Love to hear from you. Send us an email, inbox at realitycheck.radio. Oh, I read in the news that James Shaw the co-leader of the Greens Party and Minister for Climate Change, is angry. Now, I initially thought, what's new? James Shaw is always angry. It's his sort of thing uh, to be angry about something or other. But no, he. it was reported in the news that he was, quote, very, very angry. That's what he said. That's what he told Parliament. Now, this was on the very day of the terrible tragedy at Loafers Lodge where people tragically lost their lives. And Parliament took a moment uh, to reflect and to say a few words. And the words that James Shaw had to say was that he was very, very angry. They hadn't yet recovered all the bodies. They didn't know how many had died. We were still dealing with it. But James Shaw is very, very angry. In fact, it started out the news that day, and the first time I logged on in the morning, the Herald was reporting that dozens uh, were dead. Then it went down to 10, and now it's 6, and now we don't know too much. But still... James Shaw was very, very angry, and I don't know who with, and he couldn't tell us. And it's worth reflecting that James Shaw has been a minister outside Cabinet for nearly six years. Cabinet is the most powerful group in New Zealand. Cabinet can literally click its fingers and the machinery of government jumps and does Cabinet's bidding. It'll do the Minister's bidding within his portfolio. I don't know of another Westminster system where a Cabinet is more powerful than the Cabinet that New Zealand has. So for six years, James Shaw, with his, what would it be, 25, 26, I don't know how many ministers they have, 
maybe that many, has been in charge of the entire apparatus of government. And in that time, he has had the best platform upon which to raise issues that anyone in the country can have. That is to say, he's had the platform of power. He's had the pulpit. He has been a minister and indeed a leader of a political party. And in that six years, he's done nothing about Loafer's Lodge. Now, I'm not saying he should have. But my point is, he's angry, but at whom? But to, you know, against whom? Because he's been in charge. If something needed to be done or something needed to be highlighted, it was his responsibility. Now, we all know that we can't know everything that's in the future. We can't get everything right all the time. And that's why when a tragedy like this happens, we deal with it. We grieve and we try and find out what's happening or what happened. How did this happen? What went wrong? Is there anything that could have been done differently? But James Shaw, politician, just jumps to being angry. And it's reflective of so much of modern-day politics, particularly green politics, particularly environmental politics, where it is always a performance. It's not about doing anything. It's not about achieving a particular result. It's about performing in the media and showing that you care or that you're angry or that you're worried. And that seems to me to be all that has to be done, a performance. And so James Shaw was the angriest politician on the day of this, of this tragedy, and so he gets reported as being angry. Now, in a properly functioning human being, that is to say, anyone not in politics, if you had a position of responsibility, and James Shaw certainly does, wouldn't be the first thing after the thanking the firefighters, the ambulance crew, the police that risked their lives, went into harm's way, rescued people, tended to people, dealt with the horror, you'd be thanking them. You'd be extending your sympathy to the victims. And, of course, James Shaw did all of this. 
and their families and friends. And then wouldn't you, if you cared about this, commit to finding out what happened? Soberly, quietly, objectively, without emotion. If you're angry, it's like you know that someone's done something wrong and you're angry with them, but James Shaw doesn't know who, (laughs) other than himself, I guess. He could be angry with himself because he was a minister all this time. But wouldn't you just get up and quietly say, this happened in my neighborhood, this is a terrible tragedy, tragedy and I just want to assure everyone that I am committed to finding out what happened here why this tragedy happened and I'm committing to finding out if there's something that we could do different and better so we lessen the risk of a tragedy such as this And on finding that out, I'm going to commit to putting those changes into place. But the first thing we have to do is to find out what happened. But of course, that doesn't seem to bother our political leaders these days, does it? It just seems to me to be all about emotion at the moment, and then we know in a month's time, we'll still be waiting for a proper report into what happened behind this tragedy, and James Shaw will be angry about the next thing. That's a headline. And this is why when we look at the Green Party contribution to this government, it's not great even on their terms, because it seems that there's no commitment to actually taking responsibility and doing stuff. We just hear a lot of emotion. We see a lot of performance, and we don't see a lot of action. Now, of course, leadership political leadership especially, does involve a lot of theatre. It does involve uh, tuning up and cutting the ribbon. It does involve heading off to a tragedy to see firsthand what is going on and how you can help. It does involve uh, supporting and showing that the country is behind those who have been hurt and damaged. Yes, and in a way, that's theatre. But the theatre alone is not enough because behind that leadership performance has to be the substance, the commitment, the search, dare I say it, the work. And I guess that's what troubles me so much about Mr. Shaw, he's emblematic of 
what we see so much now in public life, not just politics. We see it with companies too. We're sort of carefully scripted PR statements take the place of doing something substantial to fix a problem. And it's like all those unemployed journalists are busy writing PR press releases, having got work in government departments, political parties, corporations, and they're putting out the statements so that the still employed journalists can write them up. And we're not seeing practical people, real leaders, simply commit. And I, for one, would have liked to see on this week of tragedy just a simple commitment beyond words, just a commitment to find out objectively, soberly, what happened, can we do better? It's not a lot to ask, is it? And maybe, maybe it could become habit-forming. And so that problems do get investigated. Issues that are raised do get proper consideration. And we see something done rather than endless hand-wringing. doesn't matter what the issue is. That's what we get now. And it occurs to me that it's a demonstration that our politicians truly are apart from us. They're different. They've become different because their job is to get elected. Their job is less and less, it seems, about making policy to the benefit of our country and of us all, their job appears to me now to be to beat the other side, is to win, is to have and to hold power, and not to do it for good policy, for the good of of the country, but simply to have the job. And that's why I'm pretty switched out this election because I don't see any political party on any problem with a commitment to get to the bottom of it. I see of problems and solve them. I see their policy pronouncements and their behaviour more as an election year performance. Disappointing. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, Reality Check Radio. Send us a text, 2057. Send us an email, inbox at realitycheck.radio. Oh, we've got a great day lined up for you. Stay tuned. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. It was Mahalino. What an amazing story. What an amazing man. What an astonishing family. And what a remarkable madness that we lived through such a time. That your community would actually put you and your family under house arrest 
because you wouldn't take your medication. We're going to look back on that. Our kids are going to look back on that as sort of very strange, are they not? Well, I hope they would. But it gives you an insight too, doesn't it, to past ages when madness occurred and you find it inexplicable because you think, can't people see through that? Can't they reason their way through that? Can't they see the inhumanity of that? Well, there we were. And isn't it amazing, the human spirit, that will stand up for itself, stand up for what's right, and to hell with the consequences. And that truly was Mahalino. And until this conversation, I knew nothing about the Tokelauas except they were somewhere up there in the ocean. And I love learning about the Tokelauas. And I love that image of a little 12-year-old boy leaving a sun-drenched, ocean-bathed coral atoll, age 12, to come to a wet, windy, and cold Wellington and to make a whole new life. And, of course, what made it possible was a community, a Christian community, which is a, a wonderful thing that Mahalino had and his family when they came to New Zealand. And still now, strangers have reached out to him and provided a community for him. We truly do live in a wonderful place. And it's very easy to complain about our leaders and our politics and what goes on. But there's these everyday heroes that do so much. And we gave Mahalino the opportunity to thank them. Send us a text. I'd love you to send a text that I could forward on to Mahalino. Send it to 2057. Or drop us a line. Inbox at realitycheck.radio. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. You're on Reality Check Radio. Thank you for listening. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all the separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's being ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand.
what's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio.